Amen. Thank you for going along with that song that's a little bit outside of our normal format. I thoroughly enjoy that song, and I enjoy it especially today because uh, that takes us to where we're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5. So you can turn there. Back in September, you were with me in the book of Acts. We did a short series about five foundational things that tell us who we are and what we are supposed to do as a church, the blueprints of the church in the book of Acts. And then we took a break from that. We've had Dr. Taylor and Pastor Bestie filling the pulpit for us the book of October, or the month of October. We were going to actually finish that series I started in September. And uh, the jump from Acts to Revelation is kind of illustrative of that this gap in between, September to November now. And we're going to jump ahead to the end of the church. Where is this church going? Where does it end? Revelation chapter 4 and 5 will tell us that. But it begins with these words in chapter 4. The voice, I think the voice of Jesus says to John, he says, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. After chapters 1, 2, and 3, the age of the church. And before we get to that, I want to take a look at this period of time in between. What happens in the age of the church after the book of Acts until now. And chapters 1, 2, and 3 highlight seven specific churches and the issues and characteristics and struggles they had. And I want to highlight just one theme that we find there in some of these churches. There are words used like enduring, being tested, tribulation, an hour of trial, being in prison, being faithful unto death. We see here the persecuted church. And I want to draw attention to this theme because of the day that we are on today, the, the day of prayer for the persecuted church. This is not just a part of the, the church that happens in certain countries and certain times, not just the end of time when the church is persecuted. This is part of the nature of the church, that the church is a persecuted and suffering church. In the book of Acts, chapter 14, when Paul is ministering to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch churches, it said he is strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's through tribulations and suffering. We see one of the first believers and leaders of the church, Stephen, is stoned for his faith. In Acts, And Paul was a part of that persecution and persecuted many believers. And then he himself was a recipient of persecutions. He lists his lashings and his imprisonments and his shipwrecks and even his stonings. Not many people have multiple stonings, plural stonings on their resume. We see what must happen before this. The church suffers. Before we get to Revelation 4 and 5, the church suffers is a suffering church. And it's not just that the church suffers, the church happens to be something that suffers, but we're told that our suffering as a church collectively and individually is sharing in Christ's suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, reminds us to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. 
We're being told that the suffering that we are experiencing as a church and as members of the church is not just something that we have to get through, but it's designed for us as a participation in Christ, in Christ's suffering. Specifically, part of this is persecution. And that's why we took time today to pray for those brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted. Hebrews 13 tells us to remember those who are in prison since you are also in the body. They're in the same body of Christ as we are. We should pray for them. We should remember them. We, even in the Western church, we're facing increased persecution, increased marginalization. We are uh, a pocket of, of our cultures that uh, is, is being forgotten or ignored or being pushed to the corners increasingly. We're, we're facing uh, people who, who shame us for the things that we believe in. We're thought of as narrow-minded bigots. We're facing increased persecution in, in those soft ways. And I don't know if it will, in our lifetime or ever, get to the point where we face physical persecution as described in the book of Acts or like we highlighted people are experiencing around the world. But even if not, there is suffering that we experience, persecution and other suffering that I want us to understand is sharing in Christ's suffering. And if you can take this as an extended introduction before we get to Revelation, let's look at these sufferings that we experience and how they help us to participate in Christ's suffering. We, we suffer, for one, just because we live in a broken world. The world is corrupted by sin. There's death, there's pain, there's sickness, there's hard work. I had a tree in my yard die because of the world that we live in. It's a beautiful tree and it's dead. And because it was dead, it posed a threat to my house. And so I had to have it cut down. And I'm thankful for people who helped me cut it down yesterday. And now that it's down, there's a lot of hard work. <laughs> I don't know how many tens of thousands of twigs are now in my yard. Uh, it's a huge tree. So just to take care of this thing that died is going to take hard work. We suffer because we live in a broken world. We suffer also because of our own sin. When you speed, you get a traffic ticket. When you lie to someone, they do not trust you. We suffer because of our sin. We also suffer because of other people's sin. People sin against us. Persecution is one of those things. Other people sin against us. People lie to us. And then we suffer a breakdown in that relationship. And we're told we should expect this. 1 Peter chapter 4, where we were just at, verse 12 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Suffering is coming. Don't think it's strange. But I think we're tempted to think it is strange. We're, we're tempted to think the people I love, the people that are in the church, they shouldn't sin against me. And, and when that happens, when, when there is a conflict in a relationship. We, we think it's strange. And it's not that it's a good thing and we should be okay with it, but we should not be surprised when we suffer for those things. We should not be surprised when sickness comes, when, when death visits your family. Do not be surprised by these things. 
Do not be surprised when a world that does not believe the gospel is hostile to the God that we believe in and hostile to his followers. We should not be surprised by that. But I think we're tempted to think that is strange. We're tempted to think it's strange when believers want to do what they want to do and they don't want us to preach against that. We should not think it's strange when when unbelievers don't want the Ten Commandments in courtrooms or don't want prayer in schools. We should not think that's strange. We should not be surprised by that. So more than being surprised, we should should not be surprised. We should expect suffering to come. Sorry, let me catch you up my notes here. We should expect and prepare for suffering. But I also want us to consider here how to take advantage of our suffering. Not just that we should expect it to come, but we should take advantage of it. It is a sharing in Christ's suffering. There is something to be gained as we suffer along with Christ. And I I don't want to oversimplify the things that we're talking about. I don't want to say that everything that we're going through is just as bad as believers in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or North Korea or the early church. But sometimes we might be reluctant to say we're suffering because we don't, want to, we don't want to say we're as bad as that. We're not being persecuted, so we can't really call this suffering. We might be tempted to think. Or we might think, well, I'm not suffering as bad as that person because they have chronic illness and that causes them pain every day, and I just have this. I can't really call that suffering. And while we can appreciate the degrees of suffering different people experience, when we fail to call what we are experiencing suffering, we miss out on the benefits of suffering. There are benefits of suffering when we share in Christ's suffering. So I want you to look at a sprained ankle or a a bout of strep throat that takes you down for three days or a problematic car that keeps costing you money to fix it or a job that you just don't love. These things that are small but that can still serve us as we suffer. We can still take advantage of these sufferings as we share in Christ's suffering. Four ways to do that. Suffer in those things, big or small, to release your grip on this world. Sufferings cause us to remember this is not all there is. Sufferings make us think these things that I was living for they don't bring me the joy I thought they did. They're not guaranteed. The, the, the health I thought I had, I can't depend on that. The, the resources I thought were at my disposal and I could rest in because everything was secure, I can't, I can't count on that. It remind us that this is not all there is. So even when you have strep throat for three days, you can think, whatever I was going to get done in those three days, that's a, that's a loss but I can look forward to the gain that is to come. This is why Paul wrote in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Even three days of illness can make us remember, I can lose this because I have Christ. That's why it's said of Moses in Hebrews 11, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Number two, suffer 
to become like Christ. When we suffer here and now because something greater is coming, that itself is becoming like Christ. That's what Christ did. Hebrews 12 tells us, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He suffered the cross in the here and now of his life because there was joy to be gained in the future. And when we do that, when we suffer even the smallest of things because there's greater joy, we're becoming like Christ in that way. But it extends beyond that. Suffering has a way of killing sinful desires in our heart. When we lose something that we wanted to have, it helps us to see we don't need that. It helps us to see the things I want aren't satisfying, and it helps us to want those things less. It teaches us that we don't get everything we want. We don't get perfect health and perfect family and perfect job and retirement and the dream vacation all the time. We don't get those things. And it tells us we're not in charge. It makes us more like Christ. Suffering can kill sin in us. And we're supposed to be like Christ in suffering. Hebrews 13. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. It even calls us to seek out places where we can suffer so that we can be more like Christ. Number three, suffer for God's favor instead of man's. This has more specifically persecution in in scope where man's opinion of believers is lessened because of who we are. That's a loss that we can suffer because of the gain of Christ. Matthew 5, 11, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And 1 Peter 4, again, echoes this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Number four, suffer to crush the serpent's head. We read from Genesis 3 just a few moments ago how God planned from the beginning of the fall of man that the serpent would be defeated. The serpent, Satan, the bringer of sin into the world and humanity would be crushed by Jesus' death on the cross. When Jesus' heel was bruised, the serpent's head is crushed. And when our suffering works in us to make us more like Christ, we are participating in the crushing of that serpent's head. It's the beginning of the, of the shift towards the future, not just how suffering works in the here and now, but the prophetic look of how this is going to be finished in the end. So if you go with me, skip ahead to Revelation 12. It speaks of the downfall of the serpent. Verses 10 and 11. It says, The accuser of our brothers, Satan, the serpent, has been thrown down. He who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, the believers, those who have been ransomed, conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Counting our lives as loss, suffering, letting the blood of Christ work in us to make us more like Christ, that is a participation in the destruction of Satan. Those are four ways. That's not exhaustive, but four ways we can participate in the suffering of Christ. The big things and even the small things that we suffer. And they have benefits for the church, individuals and us collectively here and now. 
but it also makes us look forward to the final resolution when everything is going to be finished and completed and put back in place. So let's look at what God has revealed to us about that future. Read with me, follow with me, Revelation 4 and 5. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. As I'm sure many preachers have said before, I'm tempted to pray and go home right now after reading that. 
But if I can help draw out a few more important observations, I ask you to bear with me a few more minutes. See here, we're given an insider's look at the throne room of God. John, the apostle, the author of this book, is invited in a vision to witness what is taking place and what will take place in heaven, and we get to go along. This is an apocalyptic vision. This is apocalyptic literature, so there are certain elements that seem strange, maybe confusing. There are allegories and images used, and I want to look at a few of those and help us understand what that tells us. We were shown what's going on in heaven now, during this age of the church, and then the beginning of the end of that, the end of the church. What is the end of the church? What is the result? Where is this church going? What must happen after this? The first thing we see, what must happen after this, is that Jesus will reign. The throne of God is the the central thrust of this scene. The word throne is used 17 times in these two chapters. It's about the reign, the rule of God. And we come into this scene, and God is on his throne. God is reigning. We are talking about the church suffering and being persecuted. That does not mean God is not reigning or that he has been taken off his throne. He is on his throne in heaven now. And John witnesses him. There is a throne, and there is someone on it, and he describes them in these beautiful languages and images. But when we start chapter 5, there becomes a crisis God on his throne is holding a scroll, and this scroll needs to be opened, but there's no one found who can open it, and it causes John to weep. I want to help you understand why that's an issue. The the scroll is a picture of a title deed to earth. In the ancient world, they used scrolls that were sealed for business transactions, and those that had property, deeds were the most significant. They were sealed seven times. This is a a title deed, and it's a deed to earth. See, God is on his throne, but earth is still a mess. God's rule and reign is, is fixed in heaven, but things are not going the way they should on earth. And God has the deed, but he has no one to go and open that and execute it and take over the earth and establish his rule and reign perfectly on earth. There's no one found worthy. And it causes tears. These are the tears of of Adam and Eve who were kicked out of the garden. This is what's described and we sing about Romans 8. All creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Who is worthy to open this scroll? There are elders here, 24 elders There are these four creatures created just to worship God. They're not worthy to open the scroll. John, who was given the privilege of coming into this scene and beholding this, he's not worthy to open the scroll. Paul is not. Moses is not. Not Elijah. Not Muhammad. Not Gandhi. Not Mother Teresa is worthy to open this scroll. Not President Trump or Obama or Bush or Reagan or Washington are worthy to open the scroll. Not Pastor Duke, not Pastor Mike, not Pastor Kyle. No one is worthy to open the scroll. But behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. One of the elders says, weep no more. He has conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And when John looks for this lion, he looks among the thrones and he sees instead a lamb. And the word that's used there is a a little lamb, a, a pet lamb. And this reminds us of the days when Israelites were practicing the Passover and they would bring a lamb into their home for days before they sacrificed this lamb and he would live among them and he would become their pet. And then they would sacrifice him. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. It's not a case of mistaken identity. This is not a lamb masquerading as a lion. He is a lamb and he is a lion. His power and his authority are actual. He has seven horns. Horns are a description of power in apocalyptic literature. There are seven of them, which is a number of completion and perfection. He has complete and perfect authority to rule and reign. He has eyes. He knows all, sees all. Again, seven of them, perfect and complete. And he is alive. He is standing, but as if slain. And this is his qualification to take the scroll. When they sing in response to this in verse 9 and 10, those around the throne say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That the lamb was slain enables him to take this scroll. And it's being confessed by these elders, among other things. Elders, and I think this is the picture of the church in the throne room of God. Elders are described with this word. It's never used of, of any angelic being. It's always used of men. These are pictures of men. And they're clothed in white. These are redeemed men. These are men that have been ransomed. They're wearing crowns. which are rewards of Christian life. And there's 24 of them. This is another number of completion and perfection. This is the final and resurrected, glorified church in the throne room of God being pictured here. And this is the, this is the pivot of the whole scene, the whole book of Revelation and all human history. God is on his throne, but earth has been messed up. And now because the lamb was slain and sacrificed for the sin of sinners on the cross, he is now able to take that scroll, open it, and extend God's perfect reign back to the earth. And Jesus will reign. He takes the scroll, and those who worship God are now worshiping him, because he is God. Justice will roll. Those who are persecuted, their persecutors will face justice. Those who have sinned against you, there will be justice established and maintained. There won't be a need for the church. The body of Christ is now in the presence of God where he's established his perfect rule and reign. We will actually reign with him for these 1,000 years that are prophesied. And, and then we get to the final defeat of Satan. We were looking prophetically at the, the, the serpent's head being crushed, and then it will be finally fulfilled at the end of these, this reign of Christ. And then all of creation will be restored. And Jesus will reign in the new heavens, the new earth for all eternity. We see at the end of the book of Revelation, the throne is not just the throne of God, but it's the throne of God and the Lamb. He will reign perfectly for all eternity. All sad things will come untrue. There's an old scholar who said, there are four things that aren't where they're supposed to be 
in, in the big picture of eschatology. He said the church is not where it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be in heaven. Israel's not where it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be living in peace in the land it was promised. Satan is not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be in the lake of fire. And Jesus is not yet where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be on the throne. And we see the beginning of all of these things being put back into place. Second thing we see here, what must happen after this? Our faith will be made sight. When Jesus brings his perfect reign to earth and then continues to reign in the restored heaven and earth for all eternity, our faith will be sight. We're told in the Old Testament, no one can see God and live. And even when, uh, even when Jesus came and took on human flesh and dwelt among the earth, people witnessed him. And the beginning of the, of the church where we started this was composed of eyewitnesses of Jesus. There have been generations and generations and centuries and millennia of believers who have never witnessed their Messiah, the head of the church, the Savior, Jesus Christ. We will see him. And again, we see the fulfillment of the things that we are looking at. As we suffer now, there will be an ultimate fulfillment of these when we see Christ. If all things can be lost because we gain Christ, we will gain him. We will be in his presence. We will become like him fully and completely. When we see him, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Sin will finally be defeated in us and we will be like Christ. And when we lose men's approval because we are following Christ, we will finally hear God say, well done. We will have God's favor in this full and complete picture. And the last thing we see here what must happen after this? We will worship. What is described here is a, a scene of awe and amazement. And sometimes we don't know what to do with awe and amazement. We don't know what is amazing and what is awesome. Sometimes we might think, we might be tent, tempted to be stoic and think everything's kind of ho-hum, eh, I guess that's all right. Or sometimes we call everything awesome and amazing. That meal you just had, that TV show you saw, that sports play that was on TV. This is what is awesome. The words of John MacArthur, it's impossible to ignore the fact that John is describing a scene of breathtaking grandeur and dazzling beauty, a glory that surpasses the limits of human language. Most of us don't even know what Jasper and Carnelian look like, but that's the best he could come up with to try and describe what he saw. He continues, John is actually describing a glory that far exceeds any jewel dug out of the earth. It's, if it's the scene, excuse me, if the scene is hard for you to visualize, that's fine. John is purposely painting a picture of glory that exceeds our ability to imagine. We should be awed by what we see here. And we will be awed for all of eternity. We see ongoing worship. What we see God on the throne right now, he's being worshipped. There's ongoing worship. There are creatures that are designed just to behold his glory. The four living creatures are said to have eyes all around them and within them just to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. A 
creator, an artist I know of. His prayer, the name of his ministry is full of eyes. His prayer is, God, give me eyes to behold your beauty, to behold your glory. So God is being worshipped by beholding his glory, by meditating on his glory, by those speaking truth about his glory and who he is, by singing, by prayer, the prayers of the saints, the prayers that we pray are collected and offered as incense before the throne of God. If nothing else, it's a motive to pray more, to gather and pray. There's ongoing worship, and there are five songs, or at least five parts of songs that we see in these two chapters. There are more that follow in the chapters after this. It starts off in verse 8 of chapter 4. The, the four creatures sing, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They sing and they worship him for who he is. They first of all worship him for his character. Then down in verse 11, the 24 elders join in and they worship God for creation. Worthy are you, O Lord, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then in chapter 5, after the introduction of the lion lamb, everyone sings and praises God for ransoming the nations. Verse, 10, sorry, verse 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that's echoed then again in verse 12 by all the angels. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We praise God for his holiness, for his creation, for his redemption of people, for his saving work on the cross. And then finally, the fifth song we sing, we see in the the end of the chapter 5, verse 13. Worship for the rule and reign. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We will worship. We will be a part of this ongoing worship in heaven. The living creatures, the elders that represent us, the angels, and then we see every creature is involved. Revelation 5, as we read about in Philippians 2 a few moments ago. I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that it is in saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the next chapter we didn't get to, Revelation chapter 7, all the ransom multitudes, not just the church, but those who were believers before the age of the church and those who were believers after the age of the church and the tribulation, all the ransom multitudes sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. So we get to the the big idea here. What is this all about? The suffering church will rest and will worship in the presence of the victorious Christ. We will. And we get the privilege of worshiping him here and now, even though our faith is not yet made sight. We're told that we, true believers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Even though God is a spirit to our eyes now, we can worship him We can worship him with the truth that has been revealed to us. So we're going to do that. We're going to finish here and close singing and praising God for his rule and his reign.